Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Katie G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Wednesday, August 6, 2014. Today we are reading from the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and we are starting at the bottom of page 107 with the last paragraph. Today's readers are the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous, Linda R., the 12 Traditions of OA, Cassandra, and our readers of the text are Penny C., Larry, and Sally. The share ID for Tuesday, August 5th, is 6723. That is 6723. The OA Preamble, Overeaters Anonymous, is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Linda R. to please read the 12 steps of OA. Linda? Good morning. This is Linda R., a recovered sponsor in North Carolina. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you, Linda. And I will now ask Cassandra to please read the 12 traditions of OA. Cassandra? 
Cassandra, please press star one so we can hear you. Good morning, visionaries. This is Cassandra H., a compulsive, a recovering compulsive overeater from Georgia. The 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon our OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight. Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create a service board or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication. Twelve, Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Cassandra. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your sharing to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year, and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass. Then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today we resume our study of the Big Book, Alcoholics Anonymous, 
And our first reader is going to begin reading on page 107, the last paragraph with And Even If They. And Penny C., could you please get us started? Yes, good morning, and thank you, Katie. I'm Penny C., a recovered compulsive overreader from Massachusetts. And even if they did not love their families, how could they be so blind about themselves? What had become of their judgment, their common sense, their willpower? Why could they not see that drink meant ruin to them? Why was it when these dangers were pointed out that they agreed and then got drunk again immediately? These are some of the questions which race through the mind of every woman who has an alcoholic husband. We hope this book has answered some of them. Perhaps your husband has been living in that strange world of alcoholism where everything is distorted and exaggerated. You can see that he really does love you with his better self. Of course, there is such a thing as incompatibility, but in nearly every instance, the alcoholic only seems to be unloving and inconsiderate. It is usually because he is warped and sickened that he says and does these appalling things. Today, most of our men are better husbands and fathers than ever before. Try not to condemn your alcoholic husband no matter what he says or does. He is just another sick, unreasonable person. Treat him, when you can, as though he had pneumonia. When he angers you, remember that he is very ill. There is an important exception to the foregoing. We realize that some men are thoroughly bad-intentioned, that no amount of patience will make any difference. An alcoholic of this temperament may be quick to use this chapter as a club over your head. Don't let him get away with it. If you are positive he is one of this type, you may feel you had better leave. It is right to let him ruin is it right to let him ruin your life and the lives of your children, especially when he has before him a way to stop his drinking and abuse if he really wants to pay the price? Wow. Um, even though this is to the wives and even though uh, I do relate to it, as some people say, you know, I'm from both sides, very active member of Al-Anon and, and, and having, having, you know, had an alcoholic um, husband um, at one time, even though I relate to this more of looking at myself, this sentence um, how could he be, they be so blind about themselves? What had become of their judgment, their common sense, their willpower? And, and that's just what it was like when I was in the throes of compulsive overeating. I was blind to what was going on um, with my children. If they had gone upstairs to bed at night, I would just be so unaware that they could hear any of the arguing, the raging, um, the the uh, the name calling that my husband and I were doing, and it was like a competition to see who could who could be the last the last to still be standing, who could win, and and over ridiculous ridiculous subjects, 
And I found out later, uh, much later, years later, that my two youngest children would hover in the room of my oldest daughter and to drown out all that was going on, they would play Beatles records. And for years, I could not understand why the three of them just were were so interested in the Beatles when they weren't they weren't the the number one uh, group in in the in their young days, but that's that's what happened, and I did not know, I truly did not know, um, and and so I I realized that from this chapter and having read it many times before that. What I was doing to my family, to my children, it's is is was not was not healthy at all. And yet I thank God that my children were able to see me recover and see and and, and get the get the even though none of them right now attends any twelve step meetings um, they some of them have the books and read read them daily, and they they see that there is recovery, and they they um, our relationship has so so much been bettered by my having these twelve steps in my life, and they're absorbing all of that. So I thank God for Overeaters Anonymous, and thank God for bringing me to these two 12-step programs that have helped me become a sane and, and better person. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Penny. And who would like to comment for three minutes this morning on what Miriam. we have said? Kim Bell. Okay, hang on. Okay. This is Bella. Can I share? Yeah, one moment. Okay, so, so far I have Miriam, Kim, Sally, and Bella. Who did I miss? Delightful. Okay, so we'll start our sharing for three minutes with Miriam. Oh, wait, who did I miss? Did I miss someone? All right, fantastic. I'll come back for you. Miriam, please get us started. Miriam, if you would mind pressing star one so we could hear you. We can't hear you right now. Miriam? Hi, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that I was muted. I'm really sorry. Can you hear me now? Okay. <laughs> I can hear you now, Miriam. It's okay. okay. Thank you very much. Uh, here is Miriam, a compulsive overeater, living in the solution one day at a time. For the grace of God, uh, calling from Israel. Well, the truth is that, well, you know, for a long time I didn't think that these chapters, they have anything to do with me because, uh, you know, they're talking about, you know, the wives of the alcoholic, but, you know, now since we've been uh, learning it since yesterday or whatever, I really realized that it has a lot to do and, 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 and I really identified with a lot of the things that it says here and... Yeah, it's a, it's a family disease, and you know when when there is a, an addict um, behavior in the home, uh, you know we obviously pass it on to the whole family, whether we want it or not. I mean, I remember I used to complain so much about things that were going on in my own home 
when I was brought up, you know, without knowing that my parents were also, you know, some kind of addicts and, 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 and couldn't handle a lot of things. And, you know, and now I, I, as, as, as I went through the process and, and, and I told myself that I'm in a different situation now, I can really forgive them from, from the bottom of my heart because I know that they were very sick. And, you know, looking at myself, all the things that I have done, you know, I, the only thing, you know, that thanks God, you know, I found this program and I went through the process and I went through through my inventory and, and my amends and, and it, you know, my life has changed. It's not that it's perfect or anything like that, but it really is so different now for the grace of God. I'm so familiar with all these things about not being present, you know, to my, to my family, to my husband or to my daughter. I was looking any excuse in order to run away, even to go to meetings, you know, because I just couldn't relate. I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't, I don't know, I couldn't cope with emotions and feelings and, and life. And I was trying just to run, run, run all the time. But now it's so different because for the grace of God, I found my high power. And I know now that I have to go to him for asking him for help in every, every situation. And I need to keep inventory myself, just looking at myself all the time. And do service, do whatever I can for the rest, especially beginning with my family and then carrying on with other people outside. Thanks so much, and I pass. Thank you, Miriam. And Kim, we'll continue our sharing with you. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. You know, in these next three chapters, you know, why are they here? Why are they here in the big book at this point? Because what does step 12 says? It says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, so we've had that spiritual awakening, we try to carry this message. So chapter 7 talked to us about carrying the message. It says we practice these principles in all of our affairs. Well, where are all of our affairs? In our, in our, with our spouses, with our families, and with our jobs. So they're letting us know, you know, now that we've had the spiritual awakening, how are we going to interact with the world? So it's letting us know about what this process is like. So it's letting us know when we're interacting with our spouses now. You know, because what, what are we hearing in these questions? We're hearing, you know, what happened to their willpower? The, you know, why don't they see that drink will ruin them? The danger is pointed out to them. What does that sound like? It sounds like what the doctor's opinion talked about with frothy emotional appeal. You know, these are the, some of the questions which race through the mind of every woman who has an alcoholic husband. So I'm trying to, they're trying to teach us here, you know, the world, the people who love me, my family, my friends, they look at what food does to me, and they don't know why I do it. All I know is what the food does for me, and I don't know why they don't do it. So we have to understand that these these loved ones want to help us, but they can't relate. And I spent a lot of time early on trying to explain my disease to my parents, trying to explain my disease to my siblings, trying to explain my disease to my friends, because I felt they had to understand in order for me to be okay, because I expected them to protect me from the big bad foods. They were supposed to understand I couldn't go to restaurants. They were to understand they couldn't have certain foods in the house. But that's not, that's not their job. So it says here, perhaps your husband has been living in a strange world of alcoholism where everything is distorted and exaggerated. So once again, going back to that doctor's opinion, we cannot differentiate the true from the false. Our alcoholic life is the only normal one. 
that is the life that we live in. And if we're dependent on other people understanding our disease, once again, we're going to be dependent on human aid. So this book is trying to teach us now. Now as we go out into the world, we've, we've had this spiritual awakening. How are we going to interact with our families, with our spouses, and with our jobs? Because that's part of practicing these principles in all of our affairs. And to not having that person needs to understand us. We need to be centered in what we need to do for our recovery. We have to understand what our alcoholic foods are and abstain them 100%. We have to know what those steps mean and practice them on a daily basis. We have to take these action steps. And we cannot, we cannot dismiss, but understand that these frothy emotional appeal is not what is going to help us. We need people who have depth and weight. And who has depth and weight? Another compulsive overeater. Someone who has been where we've been and are no longer there. So that's what this, this paragraph is teaching us, and I'm so grateful to be reading these chapters. And with that, I pass. Thanks, Kim. And Sally, please go ahead. Thank you, KDG. Good morning, A Vision for You. It's Sally in South Jersey, recovered compulsive overeater. Um, so... First of all, bottom of page 107, where it talks, it gives us a bunch of why questions again. And this reminds me, we had a why question yesterday. It said, asked why they commenced to drink again, they would reply with some silly excuse. And then coming to the bottom of the page, what had become of their judgment, their common sense, their willpower? Why could they not see that drink meant ruin to them? Why was it? And it keeps going. And, of course, it, it reminds me a lot of page 20 and 22, 20 in the middle of the page has a lot of why questions. Why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? And going on to page 22 again, it says, why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why did he take that one drink? And it goes on to say on that bottom of page 22, we cannot answer the riddle. And here we are again. We're being presented again. Um, they're, they're presenting to the families again, to the wives, the riddle. Why? 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 Why does he keep doing it? Why does he even agree at the top of page 108? It says, pointed out that they even agreed and then got drunk again immediately. And so it's, it's really is impossible to explain why we do what we do, because it boils down to that mental obsession that we're dealing with that drives us back. And I love that this page brings us to um, the, the, the top of page 108, the first paragraph, bottom of the page, it says, seems to be unloving and inconsiderate. It is usually because he is warped and sickened that he says and does these appalling things. And the next paragraph, he is just another very sick unreasonable person treat him when you can as though he had pneumonia when he angers you remember that he is very ill and this rem excuse me sally we've lost you please press star one i'm back i'm sorry it says um i'm i'm back to where i was when he angers you remember that he is very ill it, it reminds me of so many places that this book has taught me about my illness. Page 18, that likens my illness to cancer. Page uh, 90, that says we're dealing with a sick man. And even, uh, I believe it's page 75, 
Yes, page 75, top of the page. We are engaged in a life and death errand. Man, if we, if we don't get it, certainly our family is not going to get it. Certainly our spouses are not going to get it. Um, I still experience this double vision today where I see my husband all over the page and I think, wow, why can't I still not get, you know, what was wrong with him? And, and I, it's hard to keep my eyes on me and say, why can't you get what's wrong with you? I wonder how many of us married somebody who was just as sick as as we are because, you know, I was eight years old when I remember the beginning of my disease. And so, you know, here I, I, I learned so much from this page. I learned, I learned more than anything that the hardest part about our disease is that we have moments when we are ourselves, when we are the better part of ourselves, when we're not in the disease. And that's what brings such confusion to our loved ones. And that, I want to just end by saying, and that is why it is the greatest gift we can give to our loved ones to get it, to understand the nature and the severity of our illness, that we are sick people, that we need to put the food down, recognize the allergy, recognize the mental obsession, and devour this book like our life depends upon it, because it does. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Sally. And Bella, you'll continue our sharing, please. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Bella, and I'm a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Katie, for doing this service, and thank you very much, everybody on the line. Wow, I love these paragraphs because I think they are very, very, very much powerful for me. Uh, Yes, there are so many questions. How could they be blind about themselves? What had become to their judgment, their common sense, their willpower? Yes, I was there. Before program, I was asking those questions myself, and I was asking those questions through other people that I am living with. Uh, my husband that is also a compulsive overeater, my son that is also a compulsive overeater, my, my parents, my friends. I didn't understand, and I was asking those questions, questions, blaming and judging, and I didn't understand. I didn't, I never got it. I didn't understand. I was living in a, so many question marks when always I found guilty people, sometimes me, sometimes other people, and Thank God, thank God, now that I am in a program, yes, this book definitely gave me the answers. And I remember that in the beginning when I just started the program, I didn't understand it so much, this this chapter. You know, it doesn't mean me. I am not a wife of an alcoholic husband. But as I was going through the book, yes, my husband is a compulsive overeater. My son is a compulsive overeater. And my mother, that she has her compulsive behaviors. Yes, and now that I am, thank God, thank God in the program, and I am doing the steps, I understand myself as a compulsive overeater, and I understand other people. Yes, I can live in peaceful and in, in, in peace. I know that I am a sick person, I have a disease, and I know that other people as well, they are sick. 
you know, they are not bad people. They are not doing something special to make me angry or upset. I remember and I know that step one, I am powerless. I accept and admit that I am powerless. And they as well, they are powerless. And I am here to give over God's message and not my message. I am not here to force people to think like me, to behave like me. I am here to, to, to work on my character defects and to accept other people as well, to know that they are sick people. And I love them because they are children of God, the, way, the same way that I am a child of God. And thank you, God, that I am now in the program that I can live in, in peace with myself out of my own jail to accept myself and to accept others as well and to be here to help, to share my experience, strength, and hope and not to force my beliefs. Thank you for letting me share and I pass. Thanks, Bella. And this is Katie G. And I'm just going to take a quick minute. I just want to thank everyone for their powerful share. And me too. I was like, what are these chapters about? And um, I've heard them referred to as the lost chapters because they're not necessarily chapters that we are all devouring, no pun intended. But um, but what I'm learning is is these are the principles, right? So like we need to learn how to, as was previously said, practice the principles in all our affairs. And what are the principles? Well, let's take a look here. So Try not to condemn your alcoholic husband no matter what he says or does. Okay, KDG, this is you too. Try not to condemn your family. Try not to condemn. Like, so we've been through the book, right? So we've taken step one. We've, we've admitted we are powerless. And we have no power, choice, or control. We have distorted and exaggerated behaviors. When we're eating, when we're not eating, we have distorted and exaggerated behaviors. We cannot differentiate the truth from the false. We, I, for me, I make up a lot of lies. I think what's go, I know what's going on because of my selfishness. I shared all the craziness with another person. I made amends, and now I'm living in the latter steps to the, the best of my ability. I still can have judgment. I still can condemn. I can go home and think, oh well, look at me now. I've got 12-step recovery. And my stepbrother doesn't, and my family's not picking them out, and they should be doing this, and they should be doing that. You know what? They like me, Katie. They like me. They like yourself. Another outside um, uh, entity says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. So I can't be expecting other people to forgive me. I can't expect my family to think I'm like this great person if I can't you know, let them be their own person. Um, what I think is so fabulous about this chapter is it's giving me boundaries. Um, I really think uh, I love this uh, final paragraph that we made, um, talked about, except um, where it talks about we realize some men are thoroughly bad intentioned. Don't let him get away with it. Um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, with my stepbrother, uh, we've had to take some pretty serious actions with his illness, but um, that has been the result of of you know him not being able to admit his powerlessness, and boy, can I relate to that. Boy, can I relate to not wanting to 
surrender to a 12-step program. And um, I'm so grateful today that I have a standard of living, you know, and that when that judgment comes up, when that condemnation comes up, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? I know it's my sick mind taking, taking over, and I have direct instructions. Step 10, during the day, immediately make amends and see how God wants me to be of service because when I am judging and condemning God's kids, there is no God. And it's a privilege to be here after and sober by the grace of God this morning. And I want to welcome any final comments before we move on uh, on Rochelle. these paragraphs. Minky. This is Rochelle. Okay, I heard Minky and Rochelle. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, was there any... I'm sorry, what? Rakesset. Rakesset. Okay, was there anybody else? Okay, wonderful. Minky, we'll begin with you, and then we'll go with Rochelle and Rakesset. Good morning. This is Minky, recovered compulsive over in New York. In late. Could everyone please press star one? We started our sharing. Thank you. So, hi, good morning. I'm Minky, recovered compulsive overeater from New York. Um, so, this is, we're in the chapter two, the whys, and I'm one of those that they call the double winner because I'm an Al-Anon and an OA. And um, I can see myself on both sides of this wagon. Um, and when it talks about the sentence, you can see that he really does love you with his better self. It reminds me of page 417 where it says, um, a, an acceptance that taught me that there is a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, that we are all children of God and we each have a right to be here. And I'm not always good and I'm not always bad. And I have my better self and I have my lower self. And the same thing with other people. I can, you know, they can love me, they can love me less or whatever. It has nothing to do if they love me or they don't love me if they act in a certain way and they don't have a certain way. It's not like if you'd love me, then you would act in a, you know, in a way that's acceptable. If you would love me, you would act in a certain way. It has nothing to do with loving me or not loving me. You know, addiction makes everything distorted and exaggerated. Um, the other thing that struck me is um, further down in the second paragraph, it says, when he angers you, remember that he is very ill. Nobody in this world can anger me. They can be angry, but nobody can make me angry. Nobody has that kind of power, and I am not God. I cannot make somebody else angry. Um, you know, and this chapter, To the Wives, is written approximately four years after Bill's wife, Lois, threw the shoe at Bill because she got so mad at him when um, he told her to hurry up because he had to go to the Oxford group meeting. And she realized that she needed to have a spiritual awakening as well. And, you know, it's hard to figure out who's the sicker one, the addict or the co-addict, because this disease is so insane. It makes everybody insane. So I am completely insane when it comes around food, completely insane when it comes about relationships. And only this program, as laid out in this book, steps 1 through 12, and you know, going through the steps, not closing my eyes to everything, anything, keeping my eyes open and doing this work is what helps me become a serene, safe, gentle, loving um, person that's non-judgmental and can go out and live in this world happy, joyous, and free. Thanks, Pat. Thank you, Minky. And Rochelle, we'll continue our sharing with you. 
Good morning, everybody. This is Rochelle, Recovered Food Addict in Baltimore. Um, it strikes me this is probably a historical document because there is no reference, at least here we are right now, to getting outside help. Because one of the things that we learned earlier was a sick mind cannot cure a sick mind. Well, that was just about an individual. A sick family can't cure a sick family, it seems to me. So it's really important that in our time, in our age, there are actually specialists who deal with the family dynamic. And, uh, and of course, one has to choose judiciously, and I guess you have to be able to afford it. But there are outside individuals who have an expertise working with um, the family dynamic because, unfortunately, if people are not careful, like someone said earlier about uh, Beatles records and had to create enough noise so that it wouldn't impact on the other rest of the members of the family, um, otherwise, it's catching, you know, because we already have a proclivity for uh, alcoholism or overeating. And um, if we're not judicious, if we're not real careful, then our kids will pick it up. And and since a sick mind can't cure a sick mind, it seems to me um, very unlikely that this dynamic will not be given over to the next generation and that we would be and that we will not be creating the next generation of food addicts unless we get help and the family gets help. Thank you very much. I pass. Thank you, Rochelle. And Rakesha, we'll continue our sharing with you, please. Um, thank you, Katie. This is Rakesha, Recovered Compulsive Overeater in California. And this chapter is really, really important to me because my thinking was so warped when I was eating. Um, you know, I was constantly in relapse. I'd be absolute for a while and constantly back in relapse, and it would come so unexpected. You know, they, my kids never knew. My husband never knew from one day to the next if I was going to be eating or not. And when I was eating, I could see the sadness in their face, and I would be so indignant. I would think to myself, how dare they? How dare they be sad about this? I'm not harming them. I'm not doing anything to them. I'm only hurting myself. This is my problem. I'm the one that's in misery and in hell, eating day after day after day, not being able to stop. What are they, what are they you know, why are they sad about it? And I, um, that was one thing I used to feel. And the other thing I used to feel is that I'm not, you know, when I'm eating, I'm happy. Because when I was not eating, I was also very unhappy, and so when I would finally eat after fighting it and white-knuckling it for I don't know how long, and when I'd finally take that bite and let myself go and just start eating, I would feel so happy. I would feel, um, you know, ecstatic for the first little while, and I don't know why my my kids and my husband couldn't see that. What a good mood I was in. I was finally, affected, finally uh, worn on me, and I could feel good, supposedly, for a little while. So, um, but then only to find out later, you know, afterwards, that my kids would tell me, Mom, you were in such a bad mood when you were eating. And my husband would tell me the same thing. They would tell me, you didn't want anything to do with us. You wanted to just go and hide in the closet and eat and eat and eat. I thought nobody realized that besides me. I thought I was pretending to be really, really happy when I was eating. And I couldn't understand the long faces around me, the sadness. You know, it was all about me, all about me. So that's, this this chapter is such an eye-opener for me to understand what my family has gone through when I was 
constantly eating, abstinent, eating, abstinent. And um, thank God it's not like that today. Thank God I have some credibility. I today can be feel assured that I can be abstinent today if I keep working my program, if I keep it spiritual, uh, spiritually fit, and I don't have to uh, shock my, my kids or my, my husband or anyone else around me that all of a sudden I've gone off the deep rail. Thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you. And I'd like to ask Larry to please continue our reading um, where we left off on page 108. Thanks, Katie G. Uh, Larry, formerly bad-intentioned um, and recovered today by the grace of God. Um, the problem with which we uh, you struggle usually falls within one of four categories. One, your husband may uh, be only a heavy drinker. His drinking may be constant or it may be heavy only on certain occasions. Perhaps he spends too much money for liquor. It may be uh, slowing him up mentally and physically but he does not see it. Sometimes he is a source of embarrassment to you and his friends. He is positive he can handle his liquor, that it does him no harm, that drinking is necessary in his business. He would probably be insulted if he were called an alcoholic. This world is full of people like him. Some will moderate or stop altogether, and some will not. Of those who keep on, a good number number will become true alcoholics after a while. Two, your husband is showing lack of control, for he is unable to stay on the water wagon even when he wants to. He often gets entirely out of hand when drinking. He admits this is true, but is positive that he will do better. He has begun to try, with or without your cooperation, various means of moderating or staying dry. Maybe he is beginning to lose friends. His business may suffer somewhat. He's worried at times and is becoming aware that he cannot drink like other people. He sometimes drinks in the morning and through, through the day also to hold his nervousness in check. He is remorseful after serious drinking bouts and tells you he wants to stop. But when he gets over the spree, he begins to think once more how he can drink moderately next time. We think this person is in danger. There are the earmarks of a real alcoholic, or these are the earmarks of a real alcoholic. Perhaps he can still tend to business fairly well, He has by no means ruined everything. As we say among ourselves, he wants to stop. And, um, you know, when I read this, I mean, there's a lot here that I can certainly relate to um, in this this lack of control. And, you you know, my life philosophy before was, you know, was characterized by sort of like find the torture you're comfortable with. You know, find the struggle you're comfortable with. You know, whether it's work, uh, exercise, you know, marriage, trying to eat healthy, find the, the struggle you're comfortable with. You know, and that may be profound, it did sound it to me, but what, you know, what it is, it's the struggle. And before having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these, these steps, it was a struggle. It was torturous for me to stay stopped. And why was that? Well, I, I had experienced, the, the, of course, the twofold nature of this disease, the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. And, you know, the allergy I, I'm stuck with, you know, that, that will never change. However, the obsession of the mind was the torturous part. In other words, I couldn't deal with the things that all human beings have to deal with in life. 
in my family as we're reading, you know, uh, with a spouse, without having my drug, you know, my heroin, my binge foods, to make life palatable, to blot out the feeling of, of extreme uncomfortability. You know, does that make sense? And, and that's what I experienced. So bringing it back to these paragraphs, you know, we, we're reading this morning, the torture I felt, the struggle, the daily suffering I experienced as a prisoner of this disease was most certainly not self-contained. You know, it's not like we take someone with the Ebola virus and we, you know, we, we contain them and hopefully and so that they won't, uh, you know, no one else will, will, will get sick. Um, rather, it was shared with those about me, my spouse, my child, my extended family, friends, coworkers. You know, I shared this disease with them. Um, these steps, this uh, spiritual process of change, this transformation enables us to move from being, you know, I was self-absorbed, self-serving, egocentric, narcissistic. It was always about me, self-governing, I'll figure it out. To, to a, a transformation of unselfishness, you know, maybe more benevolence, God-centered, God-dependent. And that, I mean, be dependent on anyone, let alone a God that I don't necessarily see. Certainly didn't see this God, didn't feel it. To alignment with my higher power. You know, somehow this process makes it possible for the self-serving stuff to be removed. Made, and it made it possible for the God stuff to flood in. It flooded in. And when that happens, everything changes. All relationships, all manner of living for me changed. And I became aware of this transformation. You know, you will not question its authenticity. So, you know, where I read wrapping up is, you know, when, when he gets over the spree, he begins to think, you know, once more how he can drink moderately next time. That sounds an awful lot like what I read in the doctor's opinion an XXIX, what is it, 29? After they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, the phenomenon of craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of the spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over, and unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of this recovery. So, um, yeah, I treated people very poorly. And I was that bad intention person, and I'm glad, I'm grateful that my first wife left me. Had she not, I don't know that I would have made it to these rooms years later. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. And who would like to comment on what we just read? Please press star one. Judy F. Katie F or S? S as in fun. I got you, Katie F. There was one other person besides Katie S. Hi. This is Raquel. Hi, Raquel. Um, Raquel and then Leah. Okay, so if everybody could mute their phones except for Katie F, we're going to start with Katie S and then have Raquel and then Leah. Katie S, please First go ahead. First Leah, then Raquel. Okay, KDS, are you there? I just wanted to chime in here, Katie G. It, it was, was actually Judy, Judy, Judy F. Judy F. Sorry. Judy F. Okay, I am so sorry, Judy. My ears are totally broken. All right. 
Judy F., and then Raquel, and then Leah. And I'll just keep coming in the meantime. Judy F., please go ahead. Judy, are you there? Press star okay. one. Okay. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Okay, and I'm going to be quick. Judy F. Uh, recovered compulsive reader from Massachusetts right now in Florida taking care of my mom, which is a miracle of God um, that I can be kind and loving to her. And um, it reminds me um, what Riley read reminds me of the progression, you know, of my disease, of our disease. And um, I am grateful that I lost my job. I'm grateful that my friends weren't calling me anymore because they just couldn't take my lies and my falling through commitments. I'm, I'm grateful for all, all the pain because I wouldn't have surrendered and, and just been open and admitted powerlessness. And um, last year I had a brother that died of alcoholism and, and it, it was painful to see. You know, he, he was a really mean, um, unhappy person and I just kept praying for him, and um, I don't know why I was given this gift of willingness, but I'm truly grateful, and I'm grateful for my family, especially my mom at that time, and now she has Alzheimer's, and I'm, I'm praying to be, you know, it's a disease as well as, um, you know, we don't understand it, we can't cure it, but um, I can treat her with kindness, love, and patience, and I get that all from God. It doesn't come from me. And I'm grateful for living in steps 10, 11, and 12. Thank you, Katie, for your service. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Judy. And Raquel, please go ahead. Raquel, press star 1 to unmute your phone, please. And one more thing. Yes. Yes, are you there? Hi, this is Raquel. And um, I just unmuted. Maybe you want to hear Leah first. It's okay with me. Okay. Hello. Sure. Okay. Uh, Raquel, go we ahead. can hear you if you want to go ahead and share. No, I'd like Leah to go first and listen to her and then call on me. Okay, Leah, um, are you available to share? Thank you, Katie G. Good morning. Welcome to any newcomers on the line. Uh, he is remorseful after serious drinking bouts and tells you he wants to stop. But when he gets over the spree, he begins to think once more how he can drink moderately the next time. Uh-oh. <laughs> Not a great situation going on here. Um, you know, what they're detailing now is the progression of the disease, uh, you know, I know for me, um, you know, the chains of compulsive overeating were too soft to be felt until they were much too hard to be broken. Um, you know, <laughs> the funny thing about compulsive overeating is that compulsive overeating and binging my brains out worked for, for me and works for people like me, uh, and then it stops working. And then it stops working because there begins to be um, a deterioration of of everything in in life that that uh, this disease touches. The family begins to be affected. The job is affected. My ability to be in the stream of life is affected. But you know what happens for people like like me uh, when it stops working? You know what we do? 
after it stops working, we add more. <laughs> we add more alcohol. We add more food, and that's exactly what begins to happen here in this progression. Um, you know that <laughs> that uh, the program of recovery uh, begins to teach me um, that this isn't about stopping compulsive overeating. This is about staying stopped. This is not about trying to find uh, remedies and methods in order uh, to be freed from this beast. How do I apply this process of recovery to my life? You know, we've got to get to a place where we're comfortable sober. Uh, that's why the disease continues to, be pro to progress, because we've got to be relieved of the obsession and the compulsion. As long as we've got the beast whispering in the ear as, it, as what's going on right here, uh, we're not going to be comfortable. But you see, the reason I don't have to compulsively overeat today is because I don't need to compulsively overeat. <laughs> I'm not what I used to be. I've been born again, not in my body, but in my mind, where old ideas, emotions, and attitudes that I had when I arrived, when I could be described on these pages here that we're reading, uh, have been cast aside and a whole new set of ideas, emotions, and attitudes now dominate me. So you can see they're beginning to describe the different stages of alcoholism, the different stages of the progression. But the reality is that uh, this is not about just uh, stopping. This is about staying stopped. You know, these people, these wives, this is essentially a 12-step call by the wives to the wives. You know, my parents told me to stop. My spouse told me to stop. My employers told me to stop. My friends told me to stop. Uh, stop eating is not a news flash for someone like me. Stop eating is not a news flash for someone like me. To those that do understand, no explanation is necessary. You understand. And to those that don't understand, no explanation is, is, is even possible. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Leah. And Raquel, we have just a couple minutes before uh, five before the hour. So if you'd like to press star one and, and close us out, that would be great. Yes. Hi. Hello, all my friends there. This is so beautiful. Uh, and and Leah speaking first, uh, really, it's, it's good because I, I in a couple of she just said it all. Uh, again, there is here the um, classification of the different stages of progression of the disease, just like uh, in Dr. Silkworth's second letter. Only um, really from the wife's perspective, behaviors of the man, behaviors of us, and and I just can think of myself how it progressed, and that's why many times when talking to, to people, uh, to friends who just come new, new into the program, it is so important for me to realize whether they are the real thing. Some people said on this program a while ago, there are many people in OA who are not yet the real thing, and I can't hit them with a with a with a 10 kilo uh, sledgehammer on the head about the horrible horrible consequences of the disease because they aren't there yet. Only the disease can convince them that they have progressed from being type one, type two, type three, type four, and there's nothing I can do about it but just you know to to really love them and say 
you know, stick around and see if this is for you, or maybe it will be presently for you. But but the the real thing, like what I am and what I have become, the not being able to stay stopped and the, the spiritual recovery and where I am at at this point after five years and almost nine months now of being completely clean uh, and being with this wonderful program with a vision uh, that I recognize, I recognize the points where I want to do this oral fixation because some feelings are not comfortable and I don't have to do it. I'm still suffering, but I know what it's about. I, I can't fool myself anymore. And that's, that's uh, I think, a heck of a good place to be in. And um, um, uh, stay tuned for, uh, for what else will come. Only good. Nothing bad has come out of God's hands for me, even when it felt horrible. Later on, I saw the best things came out of the worst. So thank you so much for being there. And, and lots of good recovery to everybody, especially the new ones online. I love you all. Have a God-blessed day. And I pass. Thank you, Raquel. And thank you to everyone who has shared today. We will now close with a reading from the Big Book on page 164, followed by the Serenity Prayer. And Sally A., will you please read A Vision for You? Yes. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.